Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is part two of our ongoing series, Erotic 80s. I'm getting a little fed up at sexually emancipated ladies being referred to as broads. I'm not doing this because somebody's making me do it. You're a strange girl being a naughty boy. Last year, he was discovered making amateur videos of his own sex robbers. After Last Tango in Paris, the question on many critics' minds was, will movies be able to find a middle ground between art and pornography? Would they be able to take Bertolucci's lead and take on sexuality with more realism in the context of fully realized storytelling? Before 1973 was over, the answer looked like yes, with the release of Nicholas Rogue's Don't Look Now, which features what has long been rumored to be a non-simulated sex scene between Julie Christie and Donald Sutherland. In 2011, former Paramount executive Peter Bart wrote a book in which he claimed he was on set while that scene was shot and witnessed the pair, quote unquote, fucking on camera. Two days after this excerpt was posted on Hollywood Reporter's website in 2011, Donald Sutherland issued a statement saying that Bart's recollection was, quote, not true. Producer Peter Katz chose his words carefully when he said, while there was a sex scene captured on film, it was not a scene that would lead to the creation of a human being. That anyone was talking about this at all almost 40 years after the fact is testament to the impact Don't Look Now had how real feeling that scene was in 1973, and how much appetite there was in the culture at the time for movies that did seem to blur the line between the glamour and fantasy perfected by Hollywood and the shocking newness and authenticity of hardcore. Though released in the U.S. by Paramount, Don't Look Now was made in Italy by a British director and production company. And for the next few years, most of the notable films that did try to follow the example set by Last Tango, from Paul Verhoeven's Turkish Delight to Liliana Cavani's The Night Porter to Nagisa Oshima's In the Realm of the Senses, came from outside the U.S. In other words, even after the production code had been replaced by a rating system, 
that was supposedly designed to allow filmmakers more freedom to explore more adult content, once the dust settled, most movies had not exactly become more mature. And those that did generally picked their battles. When Hollywood took pains to depict adult sexual relationships with emotional realism, they tended to steer clear of sexual realism. A film like Shampoo included a lot of frank dialogue, but aside from a single shot of Warren Beatty's bare butt thrusting, nothing more visually explicit than would have been typical of a film made a decade before. There weren't many shampoos, although another notable post-Last Tango film to achieve some sexual realism was Coming Home, directed, like Shampoo, by Hal Ashby. Slowly but surely, as the 70s wore on, the X rating became the province of softcore and hardcore porn, applied to more movies like Deep Throat and Behind the Green Door than it was to movies like Midnight Cowboy and Last Tango. When the latter kind of movie was made, their directors and their studios worked with the MPAA to make edits so that they would receive an R rating. It very quickly became clear that an X rating was not the marketing boon that it once seemed to be. After 1973, there were no X-rated films in the overall yearly box office top 10 for the rest of the decade. The only film that could be considered to even be about sex to reach that commercial status was Shampoo. In the 60s, Hollywood had changed its entire way of relating to and marketing sexual content because that seemed to be where the culture was going and seemed to be the way to make money. But a decade later, movies like Star Wars and Jaws were making more money than movies had ever made before. And it didn't seem like a coincidence that these same movies had virtually no interest in what their characters did in the bedroom. And then, just before the 80s began, a massive blockbuster came along that, though R-rated, would probably have been rated X 10 years earlier. It featured ample nudity, frank sexuality, and the Hollywood debuts of several porn stars. It looked at gender, beauty standards, ageism, and male insecurity in a fairly probing way, no pun intended, its male lead became a movie star in middle age, and its female lead became the first sex symbol of the early 80s. That movie was called 10. Because on a scale from 1 to 10, George Weber is about to meet an 11. Tonight I spend with you. Dudley Moore. Sir, uh, can I get you anything else? George! Julie Andrews. George! Introducing Bo Derek. Did you ever do a tour of Valspolero? In Blake Edwards, 10. A fantasy fulfilled for adults who can count. Released in October 1979, 10 was number one at the box office its first weekend, 
and had enormous staying power. Remaining on screens and in the cultural conversation throughout the year of 1980. By the end of its run, it had become the seventh highest grossing film of 1979, sandwiched between The Jerk and Alien. It's a masterpiece of physical comedy, borrowing tropes from the silent era to diagnose and poke fun at a very of the moment generational sexual crisis. It's also a mainstream Hollywood film that dips a hand into the parallel world of hardcore porn more seamlessly than any attempt since the era of Behind the Green Door and Deep Throat. As a movie that welds contemporary mores and concerns onto a framework borrowed from Hollywood history, Ten would set a template for any number of movies about eroticism made over the next decade. It also seems to anticipate the conversation about toxic masculinity that has bubbled up very recently. And yet, here in 2022, this movie has all but been forgotten. Today, we're going to talk about what 10 is, why it worked in 1979 and 1980, and why it works today. And we're going to talk about the phenomenon of Bo Derek the perfect sex symbol for a generation that remained divided as to what the sexual revolution even was and how to integrate its advances into a moment that could hardly have been less revolutionary. Join us, won't you, for part two of Erotic 80s. I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. was directed by Blake Edwards, who had grown up in Hollywood during the silent era and had come of age as a director of comedies in the 1960s, when, through the Pink Panther films and The Party, he updated the tropes of silent film comedy for the modern era. The project of his career, as his biographer Sam Wasson put it, was to produce whole dramas out of physical comedy. This is a good phrase, and it gives you a sense of what makes Ten special. It's a drama about a man in the throes of a midlife crisis who stumbles from one act of his own petty tragedy to another on a wave of slapstick. The pairing of pratfalls and personal trauma was unexpected, to say the least. Ten stars British comedian Dudley Moore as George, a celebrity songwriter who wakes up hungover after his 42nd birthday party and, while driving his Rolls Royce through Beverly Hills, glimpses a young blonde on her way to her wedding. The blonde was played by Bo Derrick, 22 at the time of filming, and the off-screen bride of 52-year-old actor-turned-director and legendary Lothario, John Derrick. Edwards cast his own partner, Julie Andrews, as George's long-suffering, age-appropriate girlfriend, Sam. 
one night in bed at his house, George and Sam get in a fight about his casual misogyny. Sparked by his insecurity over discovering that the neighbor, whose sex life he obsessively spies on, has a bigger telescope. The son of a bitch across the way has got a bigger telescope than we have. Not we have, you have. I don't need to peep into somebody else's windows to get my jollies. You're a dirty old man, George, and so is your friend. He's not my friend. Well, he should be. You must know him intimately by now. I don't watch him. I watch his broads. He's got a hell of a stable over there. Then he must be pretty good in the sack, huh? What's that got to do with it? Well, unless he's using some new remote control screwing device, how can you uh, keep from watching him too? I concentrate on the broads. Well, he's around, isn't he? What are you getting so head up for? First, I'm getting a little fed up at sexually emancipated ladies being referred to as broads. Second, I think a telescope aimed at anything other than the stars is an invasion of privacy and qualifies the voyeur as a peeping Tom. And there's a very good law against that. Third, the first two really wouldn't bother me a bit if you'd stop watching so goddamn much television and pay a little more attention to your bedroom guests, this guest in particular. Now, you want to argue or you want to make love? Define broad. Your definition or mine? Oh, I know yours. A girl who screws around a lot. A hooker. A hooker's a hooker. The fact that they both spread their legs doesn't make the terminology interchangeable. What's the difference? A hooker sells it. Uh, so does a broad. The only difference is a hooker makes the price going in. Ah, so by definition, a broad is less virtuous than a hooker. Oh, as far as I'm concerned, virtue has got absolutely nothing to do with it. As far as you're concerned, or any man for that matter, virtue has everything to do with it. Listen, I just said broad. You chose to apply a disparaging connotation to the term. Oh, come on, George. Are you really trying to tell me that broad is not a term used by men to describe women in a disparaging fashion? I'm just saying I didn't use it that way. This debate escalates when George whips out a thesaurus and ends with him insulting her lack of femininity. You know, what's the matter with you, George? Oh, male chauvinist pig, yeah. Besides that, <sighs> you're gutless. You're afraid to admit you blew it and lose like a man. I wouldn't mind losing like a man if you weren't so damn determined to win like one. Oh, Christ. I've got an early call. Um, care to translate that? Yep. It's getting late. I think I'd better go. This scene reeks of a very specific masculinity crisis happening at the time which suggested that in demanding an equal playing field, women were becoming too aggressive and losing their appeal to men. This fight only hastens George's obsession with the young bride. He can't shake the feeling that he's been handed the burden of the sexual revolution, having to treat women like human beings, and none of its benefits, a feeling stoked by the wild and constant sex happening in the house of his neighbor. George becomes obsessed with the idea that this bride is the missing link. Here he confesses to his shrink. What were your thoughts at the moment of this fixation? The, she was the most beautiful girl I had ever seen. Uh, on a scale from uh, one to ten. Eleven. You said there was no such thing as a ten. 
Fueled by midlife malaise, his obsession escalates until he tracks the blonde down to Mexico, where he infiltrates her honeymoon and manages to get her in bed. Actually, he doesn't have to work that hard. She's the one who slips into something more comfortable, lights the joint, and puts on the mood music. I don't know why, but I wasn't expecting Prokofiev. I went to see Romeo and Juliet at the Royal Opera House when I was 16 with Nureyev and Fontaine. It really wiped me out. I like different music for different things. I like to listen to rock. I like to dance to jazz. What do you like to do to Prokofiev? Fuck. Not only Prokofiev, Ravel. Did you ever do it to Ravel's Bolero? Mm. Oh. They get into bed, and after a brief comedy of errors, they're interrupted by a call from her husband, after which George is unnerved. Five minutes ago, you weren't worried about my old man. Oh, boy. Or whether or not I was married or anything else. Oh, the hell I wasn't. How do you act when you're not worried? Look, I... I thought... Maybe you thought I was something more than just a casual lay. Why did you think that? Oh, great. Thank you. Terrific. Because I thought you were something different. Something special. I am. As far as I'm concerned, I'm very special. And if I feel like sleeping with someone, I do it because I want to. Mm-hmm. I enjoy it. It pleases me. Jolly good. It's okay if your husband does the same thing? Why not if it makes him happy? Look, there's nothing wrong with people being happy, but there's more to life than turning on and screwing to Ravel's Bolero. Sure there is. But what's wrong with turning on and screwing to Ravel's Bolero? It depends why you're doing it and with whom you're doing it. With. If I give it that much thought, I'd still be a virgin. Oh, look, Jenny. George, are you happy? <sighs> Let me see. Um, no. No, not right at this minute. Neither am I. But I was, and I intend to be again soon. I don't know what your problem is, but I don't think you're going to solve it by trying to solve mine. Fine. Fine. And I don't think I really have a problem, George. Mm-hmm. That's your problem. As soon as the Eleven becomes a person to him not, incidentally, a sexually confident woman who knows what she wants and isn't there to serve his fragile ego, George loses interest. There are some elements of 10 that today are a little cringe. George uses an F word a few times to refer to his gay songwriting partner, although the joke is on George because the movie depicts the gay relationship on its fringes with surprising nuance and George's homophobic commentary on it, is twinged with wistful curiosity. Another thing that's problematic is the hairstyle that Bo Derek wears in the part of the movie set in Mexico, of beaded Fulani braids, which you could hear gently clacking together in the last clips we played from the film. Even in 1979, this was criticized as a white girl's thoughtless appropriation from African-American culture, 
an issue the film doesn't take on at all, although Roberta Flack took to the Phil Donahue show to educate his white audience as to why Bo's hairstyle was a problem. This conversation was reignited recently in 2018 when Kim Kardashian West, as she was then called, posted a picture of herself with a similar hairstyle and captioned it, Bo West. Derek then defended Kim on Twitter, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Yes, 10 is dated in some ways. But on the whole, watching it in 2022, I was struck by how progressive it feels and that it's 100% a movie about toxic masculinity in which the toxic man is the butt of every joke and many of the gags involve his physical punishment. George's attempts to have sex are either very funny or very sad, and most of them fail. The movie has an understanding of how he feels without insisting we empathize with or condone his behavior. It shows the psychological damage that can be felt by people of any gender in a culture that makes it seem like, quote-unquote, everyone is having lots of sex with an endless supply of young people with conventionally perfect bodies. Without denying that for some people, sexual libertinism is an empowered choice, a valid one, a not-unfun way to pass the time. To make the film's theme of voyeurism even more meta, Edwards cast porn stars, such as Annette Haven, as the naked libertines who George spies through a telescope and then encounters up close and personal when he literally stumbles into his neighbor's sex party. The film makes it pretty clear that George's problem isn't that he isn't having enough sex or with a not-hot-enough woman. The problem is that everything around him is a reminder that he's getting older, and the older he gets, the more he fears, probably correctly, that the world, the spotlight, the focus of the culture are all passing him by. On the cusp of the 80s, there was a widespread feeling of hyper-acceleration, that change was happening more rapidly than ever before, and so quickly that it was easy to get paralyzed by it. As a way of trying to understand this moment, some looked to a book called Future Shock, which had been written about a decade before and which seemed to foretell some of the technological, anthropological, and philosophical phenomena that people were dealing with at the dawn of a new decade. Ten dramatizes Future Shock. It's a movie about a man whose self-destructive solution to feeling left behind is to cut his ties to the familiar and chase the unknown, something discussed quite a bit in the book. Edwards even used the phrase future shock in talking about the style of Ten and the ways in which George repeatedly, abruptly finds himself in situations which he's not prepared for. Quote, I have a feeling that maybe an audience is identifying more with a future shock kind of existence, with things that are rapidly changing. One minute you see this, the next minute you see that. Though the phrase future shock was coined over 30 years before the 21st century began, as a mass syndrome, it had a lot to do with premillennial tension. The anxiety felt by many as the century and the millennium came hurtling to a close. 
And in one way or another, these themes will bubble up in a lot of the movies we discuss this season. Movies in which stress about the speed of modern life is displaced onto sex, violence, and or consumerism. Most erotic thrillers of the 80s and 90s, actually. And as a hit R-rated sex comedy, 10 made the marketplace safe for fast times at Richmond High, risky business, even pretty woman. But 10's most evident cultural impact circa 1980 was the anointing of Bo Derek as a new sex symbol. America's first 80s sex symbol, to quote People magazine. Bo's only film credit pre-10 was in the killer whale thriller Orca. But Edwards took one look at her and cast her on the spot, without screen testing her. His wife, Julie Andrews, asked, but can she act? What Edwards knew was that it didn't matter. All he had to do was capture how she had made him feel when she walked into the room. Bo was not a trained actress, but her performance comes off as very good in 10, and much smarter than people who found it convenient to pigeonhole her as a bimbo seemed to understand it to be. 10 captures a quality that Bo would later display often in interviews, and maybe not often enough on screen a guilelessness that was totally divorced from innocence. This was startling, disarming, and maybe it's why much of the media about Bo Derek at the height of her fame seemed determined to strip away her personhood. After the break, how did a woman dubbed Mary Kathleen Collins at birth absorb the influences of Anne-Margaret, Hugh Hefner, and her much, much, much older husband to become one of the definitive bombshells of the late 20th century. Before 10, Bo Derek had no acting training, but she did, in some sense, get private lessons in a very specific kind of stardom. Anne Margaret, the sex kitten star of Bye Bye Birdie and Viva Las Vegas, came into the future Bo Derek's life in 1963, when the seven-year-old was still called Kathy Collins. In 1963, Kathy's father was hired to teach Anne Margaret how to ride a motorcycle in Bye Bye Birdie, her third film. This would be a star-making role for Anne Margaret, whose friends called her A.M. The Collins family subsequently became extremely close to A.M., with the star becoming Kathy's godmother. When Kathy's dad left her mom for his secretary, her mom went to work for A.M. as a personal assistant. And Margaret had a brief run in the mid-60s as an in-demand movie star, a kind of bombshell next door, but she wasn't taken seriously as an actress, and soon the counterculture made her type passe. She'd reinvent her career in 1971, when Mike Nichols cast her in Carnal Knowledge. But when Kathy's mother began working as her assistant, Anne Margaret was in an in-between phase. And like many sex symbols who Hollywood had lost interest in, she began doing a cabaret act in Vegas. 
both Linda Lovelace and Marilyn Chambers, when asked what kind of career they'd like to have after porn, mentioned Anne Margaret as an idol. She was someone whose sexuality brought people through the door, and once they were there, she could show them that she could do more than just seduce. Kathy and her four siblings would hang out backstage when A.M. would do her show in Vegas. It was there that an agent approached 16-year-old Kathy and said some version of, you oughts to be in pictures. The agent sent her to meet with John Derrick. Derrick had been an actor in the 40s and 50s and would, for decades after, maintain what the Washington Post described as his predatory linger. In the Bogart picture, Knock on Any Door, Derek spoke a line that became the ultimate cliché for rebellious youth. Live fast, die young, and have a good-looking corpse. In 1965, Derek had moved behind the camera, directing his then-wife, Ursula Andress, the Swedish blonde who had been the first movie Bond girl three years earlier, in Nightmare in the Sun. Now in his mid-40s, Derek was on wife number three, Linda Evans, another stunning blonde who was then best known as the star of the primetime Western soap, The Big Valley. John Derek was a silver fox, and on first sight, Kathy was smitten. I'd never seen a more beautiful man, she later wrote. Derek wasn't sure this California teenager, who looked startlingly like a younger version of his current wife, was right for the part he was casting. The movie, set in Greece, was about a local girl who develops incestuous feelings for her brother, only to conveniently discover that he's not really her brother after all. So Derek went over to her house to take some test photographs and then invited her over to his house for more photographs. There, Kathy met Derek's wife, Linda Evans, who let the 16-year-old novice borrow one of her own bikinis for the photographs. Later, the adult couple took the teen with them to visit the Playboy Mansion. John showed Hugh Hefner some of the photos he had taken of his new discovery, and Hefner said, quote, I've never seen anything I want to defile so much. Derek told his model that this was a compliment. Derek and Hef were old friends. He had photographed all of his famous wives for Hefner's magazine. Kathy got the part, and she and her mother headed to Mykonos for the shoot. Linda was also on set, but then she went back to the U.S. for a job. With his wife away, John Derek began taking his teenage star out for dinner every night. One night, after one of these dinners, he kissed her. I should have heard bells and warning signs go off in my head, telling me to stop, she later wrote. I should have thought, this is wrong. He's married. He loves Linda. You love Linda. All these thoughts would come later. For the moment, kissing John just seemed the right thing to do. Most of the public didn't see Bo until she was in her early to mid-twenties. But in her book, there is a picture of her at age 16, from the set in Greece, 
and she does not look older than her age. As Bo herself later noted, I wasn't a really well-developed 16. When Linda came back to Greece, John confessed to his wife that he had crossed the line with Kathy. Linda Evans decided to go back to Los Angeles and let this affair play out. She was convinced that once the initial infatuation burned out, Derek would come back to her. The affair continued into post-production on the film before Derek was hit with a pang of regret. So Kathy, now 17, went home to California, much to the relief of her agent. Thank God you're back, the agent said. You have to stay away from that man. He's a Svengali, a mesmerizer, a Pygmalion. He'll ruin your career, just like he did to Ursula and Linda. Kathy simply responded, What career? I have no career. When John called her and invited her to come back to Europe and, quote unquote, see how long it lasts, she got on the next plane. Kathy's agent threatened to file a criminal complaint of statutory rape if she and Derek tried to come back to the U.S. together. If this was intended as a reality check, it didn't work. Defiantly, John Derek divorced Linda and went all in on life as a fugitive with his teenage love. They bummed around for a while. Kathy chose her new name when they were drifting around Europe. She wanted something for the, quote, bohemian, adventurous me who was living in Europe with an older, sophisticated man. Bo wasn't meant to be short for bohemian. She said she liked it because it couldn't be shortened further. It wasn't something anyone could chop into a shorter nickname, and in so doing, cut her down to size. A few months before Bo turned 18, she and Derek snuck back into the U.S. She lived with her mom until her fateful birth date made her relationship legal, and then she and Derek hit the road again, living a nomadic life out of a van for over a year. This account comes directly from Bo Derek's book, Writing Lessons, which was published in 2002. In that book, she expresses regret that she broke up a marriage, but contends that the age difference between she and Derek only mattered to their critics. She writes that she was, quote, troubled by the way Americans assumed that I was John's daughter. This had never happened in all the time we had lived in Europe. They married in 1976 and remained married until John Derrick's death in 1998. The film Bo and John made in Greece would remain unreleased until after she was famous. Her second film, Orca, in which her character had her leg bitten off by a whale, didn't change Bo's life. And she was starting to get bored living in a van. One night, she and John went to dinner and a movie at the Playboy Mansion. After showing a new Hollywood film, Huff usually liked to show a new hardcore film. That night, some of the playmates hanging around protested that they didn't want to watch a porno. They complained that people in porn were ugly and the scenes were degrading and had nothing to do with what women wanted. They staged a playful mini protest 
they would not sit through another porno at the mansion until John Derrick directed one. Derrick had a reputation for photographing naked women beautifully, and the men in the room trusted that he had a knack for knowing how to please women without alienating men. Derek crowdsourced a $60,000 budget on the spot. And as Bo later wrote, we were off to make an adult film. They also managed to move out of the van and into a little house on Balboa Island in Orange County. Bo wouldn't appear in this movie. She would produce it. The 19-year-old scouted locations, hired the crew, rented the equipment, and oversaw post-production. She cast Annette Haven, a major porn star with the brunette beauty of Loretta Young, who Beau would later recommend to Blake Edwards for 10. The finished product, a couple swap drama called Love You, was a hit at the Playboy Mansion, but it wasn't what either the porn market or the mainstream were looking for in 1976. As Playboy magazine put it diplomatically, the film was, quote, so exquisitely photographed, carefully crafted, and lyrical that neither the major distributors nor the smut merchants can fit it into any of the pigeonholes of pornography. Another night at the Playboy Mansion did change Bo's life. Blake Edwards was there, talking about the international casting search he had embarked on to find a new face to play the gorgeous mystery girl at the center of his new movie. A friend of John's told Edwards that he should meet John Derrick's latest wife. Vincent Minnelli, who was also there, said, if she's John Derrick's wife, she must be gorgeous. When Bo got the call to come meet Edwards, her husband was encouraging, sort of. It's time you got rejected, he said. You don't study, you're fat. I'm tired of picking on you. Blake is straight. He'll tell you you're not ready. When Beau was offered the part after a single meeting with Edwards, her husband sniffed, Maybe now you'll get your act together. Ten opened in the U.S. in mid-October 1979 and was number one at the box office for six weeks that fall. In a year in which James Bond, Monty Python, and Muppet films were all box office champs, Ten was an organic phenomenon. It wasn't heralded in advance by magazine covers planted by an overconfident studio. Instead, its success and Bo Derek were celebrated after the fact. In 1980, Derek appeared on the cover of Playboy twice and was mentioned multiple times in other issues throughout the year. One issue even included a guide to choosing a sex soundtrack from the 40 available recordings of Bolero. Essentially unknown a few months earlier, by the time 10 had been in release for six months, Bo was fully dominating the mainstream sexual imagination. When she appeared for her encore cover in August, Playboy boasted that her first cover had sold more copies than any other March issue in the magazine's history. During the year of Bo, Playboy itself was clearly grappling with a shift in the sexual culture. The January issue contained an expose 
on a backlash to gay rights in San Francisco, which we'll talk about a little bit more next week. The February issue featured a reported story on militant anti-porn feminists, some of whom we discussed in our last episode, who were determined to shut down pornography of any kind, including Playboy, by any means necessary. But by the summer of 1980, even the magazine itself had begun to acknowledge that porn wasn't what it used to be. In the July issue, Bruce Williamson's movie review column included a sad disclaimer. Obedient to the laws of attrition and the prevailing ones of the 80s, from now on, this corner will make room only for those porn films that appear to be trendsetters or are somehow noteworthy, for better or worse. Hardcore limps along, though porno chic is all but dead, I'm sorry to say. Neither fashionable nor as progressive as it used to be when behind the green door held a promise of new directions. Filmed sex was at a transitional point, which left an opening for new objects of fascination. And that's clearly one reason why Playboy seized on Bo. But it wasn't just Playboy that rushed to cite the rise of Bo as evidence that change was riding in on the winds of the 80s. A December 1979 People magazine profile announced that the 23-year-old had, quote, triumphed where TV-bred symbols like Farrah fizzled. She is putting sex back where it belongs, in the movies. In other words, 10 was pulling a double act. On the one hand, in its sexual frankness and ample nudity, it was making good on the promise of Last Tango, integrating some of the allure of hardcore into narrative cinema. On the other hand, it was restoring order that Last Tango and Deep Throat and other X-rated hits had disrupted by giving audiences a taste of sexual authenticity in the more commercially viable and morally acceptable package of a mainstream R-rated movie, one which ultimately endorses monogamy. In the wake of the success of 10, Bo was flooded with offers, but she was uncertain what she should do. While the film was still in theaters, she shot a change of seasons, playing the young beauty who turns Anthony Hopkins's head away from Shirley MacLaine. The Washington Post published a set visit report in January 1980, while Bo mania was very much underway. Most of the resulting story chronicled Bo's silence while John Derrick pontificated about her career and demonstrated why some saw him as a Svengali figure. At one point, a controversy erupted on set because Bo ate a mini candy bar. When she defended herself by saying that it was given to her by Anthony Hopkins, who ate one as well, John Derrick said, Two wrongs don't make a right, Bo. John Derrick did not direct the movie that made Bo a star. And in the subsequent years, she's been effusive in crediting Blake Edwards for guiding her to that performance. But the vast majority of the enormous amount of press about Bo in the early 80s 
was also about John Derrick. And in some cases, it was more about John Derrick than it was about Bo. When Bo appeared on the cover of Playboy for the first time, wearing a skimpy leather bikini designed by John Derrick, in a photo spread shot by John Derrick, the cover line gave Bo's husband plenty of credit. John Derrick can really pick him. The film 10 unveils his wife as the first sex star of the 80s. The inside pictures show her running naked on a beach, frolicking in the water in and around a boat. Pretty tasteful stuff. In that issue, the Playmate of the Month is pictured with her legs open. Bo is not. The tastelessness in Bo's spread comes from her much older husband describing his now wife at 16 as the forbidden fruit I've always found interesting. Derek talks openly about their flight from American statutory rape laws and positions the situation as him and Bo versus the world. There were a lot of hostile people around. As John Derrick walked the reporter around their Marina Del Rey apartment, which was virtually wallpapered by photos of Bo, he pointed out flaws in his photographs of his wife, including her quote-unquote baby fat. And yet he insisted that with Bo, the third wife he shot for Playboy, he was making a breakthrough. Comparing Bo with Linda and Ursula, if I must, I'd say they are both more like mortals while Bo on the screen is unreal. Pure fantasy. He added, Bo doesn't really know yet how beautiful she is, but she amazes me every day. Suddenly I see this child becoming an incredible woman. If Bo Derek was a new sex symbol for a new decade, then the old rules didn't apply. Under the old rules, the star and the press would mutually suppress the story about her and John as statutory rape fugitives. Now, it became part of her star persona, part of the evidence that what made Bo stand out from the bombshells of previous generations was that she was preternaturally sexual and totally unashamed of her sexuality. One editorial by Judy Mann, published in late January 1980, noted, quote, Back in the 50s, this is the kind of stuff that could destroy a movie star's career if Luella Parsons ever got hold of it. Overnight. But times have changed. Sure, times had changed, but they hadn't changed that much. Bo and John may have been free to speak about the origins of their relationship in a way they wouldn't have been able to 30 years earlier. But I'm not sure that helped her career especially since so much of the press coverage about it was misogynistic and snarky. If Bo was right to say that she had no career before John Derrick, she still didn't have much of one after 10, when all this press was coming out. And while John Derrick was alive, she wouldn't have much of a career outside of movies directed by him. We will never know how that would have been different, if the Derricks had tried to keep the truth of their initial coupling under wraps. As we'll see, Bo's career going forward was shaped by choices she made in reaction to what she felt was aggressive press coverage. If Bo and John's flouting of the sexual establishment was one component of her narrative, 
then another major part of that narrative was that she was under the total control of her husband. And this, too, was often eroticized, as if part of the reason to be interested in her was that she was a post-sexual revolution babe who was still compliant the way women used to be. In her book and in many interviews over the past 20 years, Bo has insisted that she was not John Derrick's puppet, that their relationship was much more equal than the press would lead you to believe. You can see an interesting glimpse into their power dynamic in this 1981 segment of The Phil Donahue Show, in which Donahue asks John about his Bengali reputation, and John denies it, but then acts pretty controlling, and then Bo speaks up for herself. Yeah. yeah. What do you think? <laughs> well, I, I think that baloney. I do try to keep her from eating things because I didn't want her to be in the business. She was in the business when I met her. And uh, so I, w- I was stuck with that happening. And if, she, if she's going to continue to be in the business, I'd like her to be uh, on an important rung on the ladder, not, you know, to be clawing her way up. I personally don't enjoy her when she's heavy. And since she doesn't enjoy me when I'm heavy, but I, I can't accommodate her. I want her to accommodate me. So she, no, I mean that's laziness. I just, I just can't hold my stomach in any longer. But I don't, I don't bully her. I don't Svengali her. I would, as you would to anybody that you care about, say, look, there's a, there's a pothole. Don't step in it if you see it first. And I've been around. You know, I, I was 30 years old when she was born. So. Uh, I think that I can guide her down the street a little better than she can guide herself. But after telling her where the potholes are, she can step in them if she wants to step in them. So you're saying that you're not in a punitive person then? Uh, no, in no way. Uh, so, all right. All right, what? Well, <laughs> well there's, only so, there's only so much a relationship can grow as long as one of the persons assumes a paternal or maternal role, you know? Yeah, I don't... You, you're I, not... No, I'm not that. I take care of him. She absolutely takes he care is of never, him. He's never... I think for probably 20 years, he's never carried money. He doesn't drive. He doesn't take care of the business. He doesn't do any of that. I do it all. <laughs> really? Uh, It seems in hindsight like it was a fatal error for them to do so much press as a couple. It was definitely an error to give interviews like the one that ran in the Chicago Tribune on November 18, 1979, in which John called Bo a ding-a-ling, and Bo acknowledged that, quote, most all of me was created by her husband. Over and over and over again, John and Bo submitted to interviews and profiles that gave the public the impression that John was in charge and that Bo was happy to let him be. What else are you supposed to think when you listen to an interview such as this one from 1981, in which he compares being with her to raising his children? When I was a father, I didn't give a shit. I just, they were there. I mean, hell, they, they had to grow. I mean, I couldn't stop them from growing. They grew. But watching Bo grow, I'm wiser and it is and it's uh, more spectacular and, and with children the children come to you i mean you have an affair and out of that come children occasionally but i sort of hand picked both and so subsequently when you it is what you chose i can't understand what Bo is saying there through embarrassed giggles but it seems clear that the sudden crush of fame post 10 
made her all the more certain that only John had her best interests in mind. And if she was going to work, she'd only work with him so that they could go up against the media and Hollywood machine together as a team. Her second 1980 Playboy cover story featured photos John took of Bo in a bathhouse on a trip to Japan, and much more of Bo's own voice than the previous spread. Mostly, she talked about how she was having a hard time adjusting to the very specific type of fame she was experiencing. Quote, I wasn't prepared to see myself described in print as a sex goddess, the most beautiful woman and all that. She goes on to talk about being mobbed by photographers in Australia and harassed by them backstage at the Oscars, where she was a presenter. She talks about cracking under pressure on the set of A Change of Seasons. I blew up in front of the crew, she admits. I actually yelled. She's clearly uncomfortable being under what she sees as a hostile or predatory gaze. And she believes that the only person on her side is John Derrick. She definitely doesn't want anyone else telling her what to do. And this seems to be why she turns down all other offers and makes a deal with MGM to do an update of Tarzan from the perspective of Jane to be directed by John and starring and produced by Bo. MGM agreed to allow Bo a producer's credit, likely because they figured this would be a vanity credit. They didn't anticipate that she would ask to see weekly cost reports and complain when the flowers MGM sent as a start gift were charged to the budget of the film. Bo wrote that as a producer, she brought the movie in under budget and it made money. But the production incurred a flurry of bad press before its release, when the estate of Edgar Rice Burroughs sued MGM, claiming that the movie bastardized the source material by making it too sexy. There was a clause in MGM's contract with the Derricks that said they could update the material within reason. So a federal judge was tasked with watching the movie and deciding what constituted an update to match contemporary mores and what constituted gratuitous nudity. The Derricks believed the cuts ordered by the judge were arbitrary and only served to make the film look incompetently made. They tried to insist that the studio push back the release date and fight this censorship, but due to a writer's strike, MGM didn't have anything else to release that summer. The Derricks tried to appeal to the press. Blood will flow on the streets of Culver City if the film is cut. Derrick vowed. But his wife felt the force of the bloodbath that were their movie's reviews. She won the Razzie that year for Worst Actress. Esquire called it the worst movie of the year. But they put Bo in a bikini on their cover to sell more magazines. What did the public want from Bo? As John put it, Every project that you're offered is just another version of the scene from 10. They just want to see a fuck to Bolero again. Let's go make a movie called Bolero. They wrote a story tailored to Bo about a wealthy virgin who graduates from boarding school and embarks on an exotic journey in search of the perfect first lover. Written and directed by John Derrick, Bolero was tailored to what Bo could do 
and what she wanted to do. She gets to ride a lot of horses, in one scene naked. In her mid-twenties and playing younger, she seems to be barely wearing makeup on screen, and she looks incredible. Her natural beauty is truly a special effect. But it's hard not to laugh when Beau, who had now been an international sex symbol for five years, had made her career as an icon of sexual liberation and had bared all in Playboy several times. Gasps in the middle of the film's first non-comic sex scene. I'm not a virgin anymore. John Derrick had cynically commented that all people wanted to see Bo do was fuck to Bolero, which maybe reflected a misunderstanding of what made that scene from 10, in which there is no actual fucking, special. When Bolero was released in 1984, there were rumors that the two extended sex scenes involving Bo were unsimulated. Though the second scene is extremely stylized, the first is the most realistic portion of the movie in any sense of the word. We don't see explicit penetration, but we do see enough so that we can surmise that the scene would have had to have been extremely artfully choreographed for penetration to not occur. In an Us Magazine profile, Bo said the suggestion that she would really have sex with her co-star, which she said was made by her co-star, was an appalling insult to her husband. In a 1984 interview, Bo took full credit for the outcome of Bolero's sex scenes. These are my decisions. The films that we make are my decisions. When we came back and we started to, to cut, we, we cut, we edit the films ourselves, all by ourselves. Um, when it came time to cut the love scenes, this was, normally we do it together. This was me, all by myself. I mean, this he wanted me to feel completely comfortable with. And uh, he, ha he didn't even have any input, really. He wouldn't... I'd say, well, what do you think? He'd say, it's up to you, whatever you think. So um, uh, many times I wish he were my Svengali. It gets very difficult, the decisions that I have to make sometimes. And I, um, I'd like to crawl under the table and say, okay, you take care of everything, <laughs> and he won't. And it makes me very angry sometimes. Unfortunately, the film is too often less sexy than boring. The tone is sometimes self-consciously silly, kind of like a Playboy cartoon, as when an Arab sheik who is played by an extremely not-Arab actor, drizzles honey over her bare breasts and licks it off, while Beau frantically flips her hands around in not exactly ecstasy. Before he can defile her, the sheik falls asleep, with honey all over his face. In her book, Beau admits that she had trouble finding her performance in Bolero. She does not come off as a sophisticated actress, but at least she's enthusiastic. It couldn't have been easy when the first actor cast as her lover was diagnosed with herpes on his lip and had to be sent home. John Derrick would describe the film as a return to corn and romance, but Bolero fails to find the right balance between the two. Its earnestness was very out of step with pop culture when it was released in 1984. That was the same year as Madonna's Like a Virgin, which, in addition to hard-edged irony, had something crucial that Bolero did not have. It was cool. Bo and John made one more badly-received film called Ghosts Can't Do It, which 
yes, is about a woman who is frustrated that she can't have sex with the spirit of her dead husband. With the exception of a supporting part in Tommy Boy in 1995, Bo wouldn't star in a theatrically released feature until after John Derrick died in 1998. And yet, though she was seemingly all but retired from movies, in 2000, the Razzies nominated Derrick for Worst Actress of the Century. The other nominees were Pia Zadora, Brooke Shields, Elizabeth Berkley, and the eventual winner, Madonna. Never mind that these performers represented only the final three decades of the century. What seems conspicuous about all this is that all of these nominees were either considered sex symbols or were primarily identified with roles in which they played women who took some kind of pleasure in or ownership over their sexuality. This kind of misogyny was not at all uncommon at the end of the century. And I think today we're inclined to empathize with women whose lives and reputations were marked by this kind of slut-shaming. Certainly, Bo Derek was forced to make countless appearances on talk shows hosted by leering men who were all too eager to turn a beautiful woman into a punchline. And in all of those appearances that I've seen, and there are a lot you can watch on YouTube, Bo comes off as intelligent and confident. She lets Johnny Carson or David Letterman make their jokes, but she doesn't play to any bimbo stereotype. She even confronted Tonight Show guest host Joan Rivers about her mean jokes in an appearance in 1984. But I don't know why you do it to begin with. I personally think you're very talented and very funny, and I don't know why you had you have to do that. Do what? Pick on people like I that. I don't pick on people. I, I ask questions. Don't you want to know things about people? Everybody comes I on I don't wet on the floor in the hallway. No. Oh, those little jokes I used yeah, to I make know, about you. Little oh, jokes. I don't want to discuss those things. That's all silly. <laughs> That's silly. Beth, you don't do that anymore, then? No, I took you out of the act a minute. I thought you were coming no, on the show. Do you, do you... <laughs> now you see. Never. No, but, but let me ask, seriously. All right. Because okay, um, I had never met you. I used to do Poe Derek jokes. Absolutely true. <clears throat> Who are you going to do jokes about? Are you going to do jokes about some poor little lady who is and has a crummy life, you're going to pick the most glamorous thing in the world to make a joke about. No, Otherwise, but you're very funny without making jokes about anybody in, in particular. In some ways, I'm inclined to empathize with Bo Derek. I want to defend her, certainly from the Razzies, and for her performance in 10, which really surprised me, and for the ways in which she stood up for herself when John Derek wasn't around. But... There are other things I can't defend. In her book, Writing Lessons, published in 2002, she paints her and John Derrick's flight from statutory rape charges as romantic, a case of two people who were really in love, whose relationship just didn't fit into America's Puritanism, but was accepted everywhere else they traveled. I wondered if she had changed the way she felt as she got older, with more distance, and with more conversation in the culture about abuse and the power imbalances between adult men and teenage girls, had she come to feel differently about having been seduced as a teenager by a 40-something married man? In 2016, she told Interview Magazine, quote, I was not being abused. I was just having a great time with this fabulous man. 
In more recent interviews, she has seemed somewhat less defensive. In 2020, she told Variety, quote, I don't know about you, but when I was 17, I knew everything. I was so grown up and so adult. Now, when I look back at photos of me, I was young. 17 is young. There was no me tooing with John. But yeah, I'm very conflicted about it when I look back on being 17 with a 46-year-old man. As I said, I thought I knew everything. It felt right at the time. I was so in love with him, and we ended up together for 25 years. A lot of people mythologize their first love later in life, and most of those people are not still with the person they fell in love with when they were 16, 25 years later. It is true that the age of consent is 16 in some places, and maybe this was truly a case where a teenager fell in love with an adult man and wasn't being exploited or groomed or abused. Certainly, Bo Derek thinks her relationship with John Derek was exceptional, and she maintains that she never did anything she didn't want to do. As she writes early in her book, quote, my decisions are my own, just as they always have been. If we're going to say believe women when they tell us they've been abused, don't we have to believe them when they're saying they weren't abused too? But what I can't give the Derricks the benefit of the doubt on is the portrayal of young teenage sexuality in Bolero. Early in the movie, Bo Derrick's character meets and sort of adopts a Spanish gypsy girl who is said to be approaching her 14th birthday and who was played by Olivia Dabo, later seen as Kevin's older sister on the original Wonder Years series. The actress was 14 when she shot Bolero, and she appears naked or topless several times throughout, always in the context of bathing or saunaing. The first of these scenes, in which she is filmed fully nude, is the one that I find the most problematic. Bo's character is giving her new charge a bath. When the adult woman sees the 14-year-old's body, she comments approvingly. Stand up. What was you going to, to do? I'm going to rinse you off. But why? So you don't itch. But look at you. I am woman, ready, juicy too. It's one thing if Bo had no regrets about starting a sexual relationship with John Derrick when she was a teenager. But just because that relationship worked out, doesn't mean it's okay for adults to present 14-year-olds as sex objects. This scene invites the viewer to ogle a naked 14-year-old and then tells that viewer not to feel bad about it because she is woman. Because her body is so developed, you don't need to think about her emotional maturity or her ability to consent. The fact that this character is marked as quote-unquote exotic a gypsy, and is played with an exaggerated Spanish accent by an actress who is not Spanish, plays into additional pernicious myths that, quote-unquote, ethnic girls mature faster. As far as I can tell, this was not remarked upon in 1984. Maybe because critics were so busy using Bo herself as a punching bag, and no one is remarking on it today 
even though this movie is currently streaming on HBO Max. It doesn't bother me that Bolero is a porny vanity project. If that's all it was, it would be sort of charming. What bothers me is that it advocates for adults sexualizing a 14-year-old girl and treating her as equivalent to an adult. I want to live in a world in which the movies can portray a wider and deeper array of adult sexuality than they currently do. And that includes depicting things that I wouldn't do or wouldn't want done to me. I think movies can deal with sexual situations that are non-consensual or illegal because we can't pretend these things don't exist. And depiction is not necessarily equivalent to endorsement. In Pretty Baby, for instance, we're shown preteen Brooke Shields' naked body so we can be horrified that said body is up for sale. But this scene in Bolero feels a lot like uncritical endorsement. Next week, we are talking about another major sex star of the 1980s and a movie from 1980 that set the template for this whole season as much as any other. Join us then, won't you? Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. The show is written, produced, and narrated by Karina Longworth. That's me. Special thanks to our special guest, Noah Segan, who played John Derrick. This season is edited and mixed by Evan Viola. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our social media assistant is Brendan Whalen. And our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod, and we're on Facebook and Instagram, too. And if you go to our website, you must remember thispodcast.com. You can find show notes for this and every other episode, which include lists of our sources and much more. At the website, you can also find merch like hats, t-shirts, and our special limited edition Dead Blondes coloring book. At patreon.com slash Karina Longworth, you can support the podcast, get lots of bonus You Must Remember This content, including scripts or transcripts of our full archive, and some glimpses into other aspects of my life. Proceeds from Patreon go to help pay all the people who work on the show named above. Finally, subscribing or rating and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts can really help other people find it. So if you want to spread the word, that's a great way to do it. We'll be back next week with an all new tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night. 